Welcome to Midwest Con 2023. I'm Rob Richardson, uh, founder of Disrupt Art and also host of the podcast Disruption Now. Uh, we are, we're here live at the Digital Futures Building and I, I'm here with my next guest, Oswad Thomas, Aswad Thomas actually, and he is the VP of uh, the Alliance for Safety and Justice, the largest criminal justice organization in the nation. They've been responsible for reforms that have happened, essentially the, the largest criminal justice reform uh, we've ever seen in this nation. And it, this is really uh, an important point to me. We spend more money than any nation by a lot when it comes to locking up people. And you think we'd be the safest. The only thing we're the best at is locking up the most people and spending the most money and, and ruining the, uh, as many lives as possible. There are better ways to approach safety. There are effective ways to approach safety, but first we have to change the narrative. Uh, and, and with Aswad Thomas, we're gonna talk about that in his role uh, and what he's done in his story. In particular, we're gonna talk about uh, the head of his organization too, Lenore Thomas, who's also been on this podcast. Uh, we're gonna talk about uh, that book in their names, which is a wonderful book. There are two books that everybody must read when it comes to criminal justice reform. The first is in their names, you need to read that. The second, many of you probably have read, which is The New Jim Crow. Uh, if you are at all interested or curious about why criminal justice reform is the most important civil rights uh, topic of our era, you need to read both of these books. They're both of us. Uh, we're gonna talk about, uh, we're gonna talk about the first in our podcast. We'll see you on, on the other side. If you believe we can change the narrative, if you believe we can change our communities, if you believe we can change the outcomes, then we can change the world. I'm Rob Richardson. Welcome to Disruption Now. Oswald, thank you, man. How you coming? How you doing, I'm man? I'm doing pretty good. Thank you so much for having me here. Yeah. Uh, so, tell me, what is your passion? Man, that's a good question. Um, I'll start with what was my first passion yeah. uh, for me, um, basketball. You know, I was born in uh, Hartford, Connecticut. Um, I spent most of my childhood in Detroit, uh, Michigan. You know, grew up in a single parent home, you know, the youngest of five boys. And so for me, you know, growing up in inner city community, you know, it was like two things that I thought that I would, you know, need to excel at right. uh, in order for me to help make it out of my neighborhood. Uh, one was my uh, academics, uh, and the second was uh, basketball. Right. Um, you know, that was a, a thing that, you know, kept me out of trouble. That was the only safe space place that I had in my neighborhood to really get away from, you know, the things that surrounded me, the, the, the poverty, uh, the, the, the violence um, as well. So I ended up uh, going to college. I became the first male in my family to ever graduate wow. from college and was also uh, on my way to play professional basketball uh, overseas. So for me, uh, basketball was uh, my passion, but things happened uh, in my life um, and opened up a new chapter, a new passion of mine, which is uh, traveling the country, organizing uh, crime survivors. Well, tell me, tell me what happened. I mean, we know, I know from the book In Their Names by Lenore Anderson, so I know, I've known something about your story, mm -hmm. but your passion, your first passion was basketball, yeah. but you know, the universe and everything took you in another direction. How did that happen? Yeah, so 2009, you know, for me, that was the highest point in my life. I just graduated from college, the first male in my family to ever graduate. So that was just a historical moment uh, for myself, my family, and also for my entire community. And I was also a star basketball uh, player um, as well. Um, but unfortunately, 2009 became the lowest point in my life um, when I was, uh, you know, uh, just leaving a corner store in my neighborhood in Hartford, uh, Connecticut. Um, I was shot twice in my back. 
and uh, those uh, bullets uh, uh, nearly uh, ended my life and, and, and ended my professional uh, basketball uh, career um, as well. You know, I remember uh, being in that uh, hospital bed and my doctor, you know, kind of, you know, come to my bedside and say, you, you know, you are a victim of gun violence. You have two bullets uh, stuck in your back. Um, and we don't mm. know if you will be able to play basketball again, let alone we don't know if you'll ever be able to walk oh. again. How did that feel? And that right there, that's when it hit me. It hit me because I worked so hard on the basketball court uh, to hear that, you know, um, I may not be able to play professional basketball. Um, Again, um, it kind of brought me to a stage of depression. Um, It it brought me to something that um, I was good at, something that I spent hours of training, hours of perfecting my craft within a split second uh, was going um, away um, by uh, two two bullets as well. Wow. So walk me through the moment when you, after after this has happened, mm-hmm. I know that then the, um, the police came up mm. and, and, and started their investigation. What happened? When that when that occurred, what 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 was the what, you know take us through that? Several things happened during that moment. One, I was released from the hospital back into the same neighborhood where I was shot because that's where yeah. I lived. And I remember being discharged uh, from the hospital. You know, my doctors and the nurses they told me about the physical challenges that I would have, right? But nobody never mentioned the psychological effects of being a victim of gun violence and having to live in the same neighborhood. Uh, where you were shot. So during that recovery process, I was struggling in, in, with the PTSD, you know, the flashbacks, uh, the nightmares, the, the, the depression, the anger, you know, the, 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 the isolation that I was going through. Um, and so during uh, this time, as I was recovering, you know, law enforcement came uh, to visit me. And, you know, Rob, every time they came to visit me, it was always about the case. You know, I remember them asking me, you know, hey, you know, what were you doing outside? Um, at that particular time, uh, did you have any conversations with anyone? You know, have you been involved in, you know, anything that could have led to uh, you being shot? And here I am, you know, recovering from, you know, these bullets on my mother's, you know, uh, couch. I'm saying I just graduated from college, yeah. right? I'm a star basketball player. I've never been uh, in trouble um, at all. And so right then, you know, those interactions with the law enforcement right. actually became more stressful. Yeah, um, the assumption was process. made. The yes. assumption was made that. Somehow, like it's victim blaming, whatever, you yeah. deserve what happened to you. Something must have happened for exactly. that to happen. They shot you for some reason. Mm-hmm. And there, I guarantee you that story, if they walk over to the suburbs of, uh, it was Baltimore, correct? Uh, Harford, Connecticut. Yeah, Harford, Connecticut. Yep. If it was, if it was uh, suburbs in Connecticut, yeah. uh, Connecticut, and, you know, perhaps, you know, your, uh, your skin looked a little different. Yeah. Uh, the conversation would have been, we're going we're gonna, to we're gonna make sure the people that did this pay how can we go about helping you? Yeah. And people don't understand that 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 the tr- the our interaction with law enforcement, mm. unfortunately, that's what you went through, is not unusual. It's yeah. the commonplace. Yeah. Like I know another person who had a story where he had to actually defend his life, mm. and he had done everything right in his entire life too. Mm. Had a spotless record, and because he didn't have a lot of money. Mm. You know, they made him cop to a. They didn't make him, but essentially, he had. He felt like he had to do this because he didn't have a hundred thousand dollars to spend mm. on an, an attorney to defend him, though mm. he clearly had all the facts on the side. <clears throat> but they asked him the same question. Mm. They said, "Look, well, you know, they assumed he was a gang member. You know, mm-hmm. he's 
he's the, you know, he was, he was a Marine. And they're like, what, what, what? And they still, mm. it didn't matter. Wow. Like, they only saw one thing. Yeah. And, and they knew the person that he had to shoot was actually a well-known, mm. <laughs> was a well-known uh, gang member and had done things to people. But he was assumed to be somehow in the wrong. Yeah. So they had to find a way mm. to get a charge. They said, well, you know, we got all that. But, you know, somebody, somebody got killed, so we got to charge you with something. Mm, wow. And so they, they didn't, he served hardly any time. Mm. But he had a felony on him for the rest mm. of his life. Wow. And then that mm. affected, he, he, and then he didn't appreciate how that hangs over you. So mm-hmm. let's talk about that. Yeah. You're in a hard field, man. Yeah, very, yeah, very, you know, very, very yeah, difficult. Yes, it is. Uh, you are in a very hard field. Yeah. It's a, no, it's a noble problem. You and I agree with it. Mm-hmm. But what motivates you day in and day out to keep going when it's when you have such headwinds so, uh, that's a great question several things uh one um you know the experience of the uh, of, of a black male who's been a, a victim of gun violence i know that all too well firsthand experience of being a victim of gun violence but i actually come from a family of victims of gun violence my father was shot in the 1980s my brother was shot in the 1990s. I have two cousins that were shot in the 2000s. Like all of us had interactions with law enforcement. All of us had in some interaction with the justice system, but none of us never received any type of victim services, any type of mental health or any any cause or concern for our well-being after being uh, victims of gun violence. So in my immediate family, five out of the 10 males are victims of gun violence and six out of the 10 males have came in contact with the criminal uh, justice system um, as well. So I'm, I'm impacted by both sides of it as a yeah. victim and also my uh, brothers have been incarcerated. My oldest brother has been incarcerated for the past uh, 22 years, right? So that's the one thing that kind of started me to think about the impact of uh, uh, the, the cycle of violence that happened, how that often leads to people coming in contact with the justice system. The second thing was um, during my last doctor's appointment um, to remove the bullets out of my back. My doctor, as he's performing surgery on me, he started to tell me the story of this other young black teenager uh, from my uh, neighborhood who he had treated four years prior. So that young man, as my doctor was describing to me, was 14 years old. Um, he was shot. He was shot in his face at the age of 14 years old. My doctor saved his life, but couldn't save his eye. Um, and like the more details he started to uh, share about that young man, as I'm sitting on the operating table, my heart started to be fast, yeah. um, Rob, because like, he was describing the, the young man that shot me. Mm. And I remember telling my doctor, Marshall, said, hey, I don't know if you know this, but you just described the young man that shot me. And I knew that because of the patch that young man had on his eye. When my doctor was sharing that, that young man lost sight in his eye and we sent him home with a patch. That's for me, when I made that connection, it was that uh, young man. So just, just, wanna, just wanna dive deeper into that, right? So that teenager at the age of 14 years old was a victim of gun violence, was released from that same hospital back into that same community just like me, not connected to any services at all. And then four years later, he played a, a role in shooting me um, four years right. later, right? And so that unaddressed trauma that he was experiencing, right, that often leads to people coming in contact with the justice system. So, in, you know, we just released a new study. Yeah, that, unaddressed, the, the, the trauma. Yes. Like people think, because I was going to get to, yeah. that, and the book talks about that in their names. Mm-hmm. 
about really addressing trauma. Yeah. Like, because that that I'm seeing, I'm, I'm guessing is, you feel like one of the keys to actually reducing violence in our in our community. Talk more to that. Yeah, it's, it's, it's the key to reducing violence in our community. It's also the key to reducing incarceration. Mm, okay. Right. So we just released a report uh, this year called the Road to Re. Uh, so our organization, the Alliance for Safety and Justice, we have two flagship programs. One program is called Crime Survivors for Safety and Justice, which is a national network of over 180,000 crime victims from across the country. The other part of our program is called Time Done, which we have 200,000 people who are living with past convictions, right? And so we bring these two constituencies together to uh, call on a better uh, uh, criminal justice or better public safety uh, system. In the report that we did this year called The Road to Redemption, we found out that nine in 10 people who have a past conviction have been a victim of a crime before they went into the criminal justice system. Yeah. Right. So being a victim often leads to two things. One, it can lead to being re-victimized again and often leads to coming in contact with our yeah. uh, criminal justice system. And and that's where we have failed uh, communities, especially black and brown uh, communities um, in, in this country by not focusing on the victimization that people right. um, um, have experienced. But of course, that's what the narrative that was put forward mm -hmm. when all of these laws that were supposed to protect us. Yeah. The narrative that was put forward is it was always somebody that they put forward that was an awful victim, right? That's something yep. that, like the worst facts you can think of. Yep. It happens, and then that usually led to some huge change in the mm -hmm. law that was supposed to protect people, may, uh, you know, make communities safer. It did not do that, exactly. right? We know we know what happened. That's how we got to where we are now. Mm -hmm. But to your point, there's hardly any money spent. Yeah, almost zero. Yeah. You know, relatively speaking, when it comes yep. to helping the victims who were actually affected. Exactly. Right? All of the money goes to pay for everything else. Yep. The militarization of police, yep. the, uh, the, the parole officers, yep. uh, the big correction facilities. Yep. None of it goes to the victims. Exactly. People are like, so like, and, and, and so like, it's interesting, people talk about the victims, mm -hmm. uh, but I don't care your talk, right? What do you, you show me what you spend money on. And I'll show you what you value. Yeah, and it's not the it's not the it's not the victims, right? It's yeah. the it's everything else that's supporting our huge multi-national incarceration system that's yeah. making a few people wealthy, providing jobs for a few, but taking away so much opportunity for others. I mean, that's why I'm so passionate yeah. about what you guys have done and you've, you've been a great supporter of the podcast. Mm -hmm. uh, but you know, before that, even if you weren't, your work is very important. It, yeah. is, it is the seminal civil rights issue of yeah. our time. So something that we're gonna talk about more tomorrow yeah. <clears throat> is in technology, yeah. they say to have the <clears throat> greatest impact, you need to know the problem you're solving, mm. right? Yeah. And Lenore talked about this on our show we need to flip the narrative of the problems that we're solving. Yeah. And I, I don't wanna to focus too much on that because we're gonna talk about that more later mm -hmm. tomorrow when we, uh, when we get more into our um, talk. Yeah. But I do wanna talk about changing the narrative because mm -hmm. it's a similar conversation. Yeah. How do we change the narrative about crime given that we have forces that are so effective yeah. at marketing, mm -hmm. so effective mm -hmm. at, sim <clears throat> at simplifying a message that's emotional? How do we do that given that. 
several things that we can do. One, we think about mass incarceration. You know, who played a key role in mass incarceration? It was uh, law enforcement, it was politicians, and it was crime victims. Yep. But it was a very narrow... And it was voice in, in media played a key role, and, and, yeah. and also thinking about you know you know we have to you know make our communities safer, right? That was a kind of the a kind of the the, the call uh, right. to action, right? And we also listened to crime victims who supported yes. uh, those uh, policies as well. But one thing we haven't did for the past forty years is actually listen to the crime victims that are most impacted by violence. Right, so that's what our organization have been doing for the past 10 years of building this movement across the country and asking crime victims, what does safety look like to you? And what crime victims are saying across the country, these are crime victims who are victims of domestic violence, sexual assault, parents who've lost loved ones uh, to homicide, victims of gun violence like myself. For crime victims, uh, safety is actually more trauma recovery centers to help people heal um, when they have been victims. Uh, safety is about preventing violence from happening in the uh, first place. Safety is actually about getting people jobs so that they can help take care of their uh, families. Safety isn't about funding people into this punishment uh, system because they have not worked for us for the past 40 years. And funded for life. Years, like, and, and, and funded I, for life, as like you I, mentioned. Yeah, yeah, because I think the bigger part of what you're saying and what often gets lost is mm-hmm. people think that they're saying, okay, does that mean you're being soft on crime? Does that mean you're saying people there's no prison no what we're saying is how we structure rehabilitation is not a part of it exactly right yeah Uh, being able to come into society again that's not thought of Mm -hmm. because this because when once you make a mistake in any way uh, and if it's a felony that affects everything for the rest of your life and there's and it's very hard for you to come back from that and you got to ask are we gonna we just throw away people here yeah and then what does that do that creates more crime yeah but what I think we're up against right now, uh, what makes me nervous, and I want to hear mm-hmm. you talk about this, is there's obviously a rise in crime right now, or, or, or I mean, or at least it seems in, relatively in, speaking. In some places, some places homicides right. are, are are down. Which some are down. Some right. are down. Yeah. Yeah. But perception is reality. Yeah. Right. And right now, enough of the and I've seen this play before mm-hmm. in the 80s and the 90s. Yeah. Yeah. Right. We've just started to talk about criminal justice reform. We've just mm-hmm. got people to understand the enormous amount of money and resources and, and mm-hmm. justice that happens. But I'm, I'm nervous about that other part of the brain that takes over from people yeah. when, they're, when they're fearful. Yeah. What can we do at this moment to keep people focused on the long-term of safety and not settle for, settle for short-term results, that, the short-term efforts that we know will take us backwards? But one thing we gotta continue, we gotta listen to the crime victims that are most impacted by it, right? Yeah. Continue to listen to about what safety looks like uh, to them. Also, we have to make sure we're uplifting some safety solutions, right? The things that help stop the cycles of violence. As I mentioned, the trauma recovery uh, centers. We started with one trauma recovery center in California. Now we have 52 of these centers across the country that are in communities for people to get access to free mental health services, free counseling, free therapy um, support as well. So we gotta build this infrastructure of mental health and victim services in community. That's one thing that we have. Uh, to do the second thing we that we have to do we have to mobilize across the country every movement starts with uh, the people so that's why we are mobilizing crime victims and people with past convictions these two constituencies that are most impacted by the criminal 
uh, justice. We got to mobilize them. We got to build their power. We got to share their stories. We got to train them to be leaders and advocates. We got to train them to talk to the media, to go meet your editorial board, right? To talk about what your safety priorities are, um, you know, to go meet with local reporters, to talk about what your safety priorities are. We have to continue driving this message around uplifting these safety uh, solutions across the country. If not, we'll go back to the 80s and 90s, which for us, it haven't made our communities safer no, um, at all. Didn't didn't work. Yeah. Uh, as why, okay, I got a couple of final kind of rapid mm -hmm. fire uh, questions yeah. for you. What does legacy look like for you? Man, uh, great question. For me, legacy look like, so we have about uh, 400,000 members of Crime Survivors for Safety and Justice in Time. The legacy look like we need to be uh, a million members strong in the next uh, few years. I talked about only having 52 trauma recovery uh, center. Legacy look like for me is that how every people, community. How can people become members? How so can how can be, people become members? So go to our website, www.cssj.org. If you are a crime survivor, If you are a crime survivor, join us. Membership is free. Okay. If you are living with a past conviction, you want to be part of a community, go to timedone.org. So building power through membership, advocating for more services and resources and do what we've been doing over the past few years is changing state laws state by state and uplifting better safety solutions. That's awesome. Uh, if you had a theme mm. for your life, mm. what would that theme say and why? It could be a saying, a theme. It's something that my college basketball coach used to say to us. When we used to be running those sprints, right, uh, you know, running... Uh, these drills. He always used to say, you're never as tired as you think you are. You're never as tired as you think you are. You're never as tired as you think you are. I like right? that. And so we're those, you know, if you're a student, right, you know, you're tired as heck from, you know, homework and, and preparing for the session, you know, keep going. Right? For survivors, you've been through an experience of victimization or if you've been incarcerated, you can overcome so many different things. So for me, it's like, I, that's my motto, what, what keeps me going is, you know what, you know, despite how hard it can be, you know, we're never as tired as we think we are. We always got, we always got something left in us to continue fighting, to continue pushing. I love it. All right, final question. Mm -hmm. You have three members of the board of your advisors for life, for business, <laughs> or community advocacy. Tell me who these three people are and why. Ooh, you got some, you got some good questions coming from me, <laughs> man. Um, you know, if you had ideal, at, you know, board members, right? You know, think of someone like Oprah. Um, you know, you think of crime and violence that's happened to African-American women uh, in this country and the lack of, of support. So being having, you know, someone like Oprah, yeah. right, to help uplift what uh, folks are going through in communities, but also being able to help empower others to give back to uh, this movement. You know, I think about folks like LeBron uh, James, who come from the city of Akron, a community that has been devastated by violence as well. Uh, being able to have LeBron join the charge, right, to help us build more of these trauma recovery centers across uh, the country and a third is just like your average, you know, person who wants to get involved. Um, you know, whoever that could be a doctor, it could be a lawyer, it could be an activist in the community, like someone who wants to make this country better than it was before. Because 2024 is a cr critical moment for criminal justice yeah. and public safety. But also, it's a critical moment for our country as well. It is. It's a. It's critical. It tells who we are and what our values are. So. Yeah. As what, brother? Thank good you. to have you on, man. Of course, good. Thank you for having me here. So we're joining you again, MidwestCon 2023, here at the Digital Futures Building at the University of Cincinnati. Rob Richardson here, CEO of Disrupt Art, also 
uh, host of the Disruption Now podcast. We've had uh, Aswad uh, Thomas on our show. He is the VP of the uh, the Alliance for Safety and Justice. You can find more about them in the, uh, in the, in the, in the, in, in the intro in the comments. We're going to put all the links so you can learn more about them. Obviously, you can always also learn more about what we do at Disrupt Art. We use the power of entertainment to empower creators and also empower brands, but we're also about social impact, and that's why we do everything that we do. Uh, we appreciate all that you do. Thank you for listening. We'll see you next time.